Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word and for this famous story. We pray, please, that as we engage with it, we won't just be overwhelmed by uh, the miracle itself of Jonah's salvation, but by you who is behind it and what you're teaching us about yourself and what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I reckon in the ranks of famous stories of the Bible, uh, this one's up there, if not, if it doesn't take the cake. You know, up there with Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel and Daniel and the Lion's Den. Even the non-Christians know this story. Uh, you could talk to pretty much anyone about it. And it's there in popular culture in lots of different ways. In Pinocchio, uh, Pinocchio ends up in the whale. Uh, there's uh, the Simpsons keep talking about Jonah in multiple episodes. Newspaper articles about Michael Packard last year. Remember the guy who was in the mouth of a humpback whale for four hours, got swallowed up. Uh, he never made it to the stomach, but uh, fought his way out. Um, he was described in the newspapers, in the newspaper headlines as the new Jonah. Uh, Cape Cod Times said it was an experience that was truly biblical. Uh, but while Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish and surviving is famous... My guess is that most people don't think it really happened. Like you said, they think it's all a bit fishy. Uh, and maybe that's the biggest question in your mind now. We've just read it again. Uh, did it really happen? Did God really send a fish like that? And could he have lived three days and three nights inside? Or, or maybe it's just a parable about something. Maybe that's it. It's a parable. Lots of Lots of churches have gone with that. It's a parable. Not sure what it's a parable of, but uh, does it even matter if it happened? I don't want to say, of course it matters, and of course it happened. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but there are bigger and better questions that we should be asking, right? That's the question that might be in our mind, but there are more important questions. Why did God bother to save Jonah at all? After all, he's on the run from God. He's blatantly disobeyed God's call. He couldn't stand to do what God had told him to do and not because he was scared, as we'll find out later. In fact, he says he'd rather die than have to face doing God's will. So why didn't God just say, oh, well, uh, suit yourself, I'm done with you. And find another prophet, one who was much more willing to go do the job. And if God wanted to send someone else to preach judgment, surely he could find someone why save Jonah at all? An even bigger question, I think, is if he was going to insist that Jonah was the one to do it, why the fish? Why not just make him some other way? He could have blown the whole ship back to Joppa in the storm, right, and beached it there. Uh, he could have teleported him there, like with Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 or Philip the Evangelist in Acts. Right? There's all sorts of ways. Why the storm? Why the fish? Why the vomiting? I think they're the questions that God wants us to ask and they're the questions that he's answering because there's something profound that he wants us to learn that only happens because Jonah was saved this way. But before we get into that, let me briefly mention why I think it's not just some sort of parable. And I think that for at least four reasons. The first is because we're talking about a historical person. Uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a real guy. He's named as that at the start. We know who his dad was. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. He was a prophet to the northern nation of Israel after the Civil War, which had ripped the nation in two. 
during the reign of King Jeroboam II. But not only that, the second reason is that Jesus treats what happened to Jonah as historical. He says in Matthew 12, 40, we just read it, just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I'd be very slow to call Jesus, who is God become man, a liar. Jesus knows what he's talking about. In fact, he uses Jonah's physical experience of being in the belly three days and nights to talk about what's going to happen to him when he dies and rises again. And that's not figurative, although the same people who say that Jonah's a parable are also saying that Jesus' resurrection never happened. But Jesus really rose from the dead bodily, just like Jonah. And third reason, it's quite within God's capability to do it. If God can form the universe just by speaking it into existence, if he can part the Red Sea, if he can raise the Lord Jesus back from the dead uh, to life after being buried, why would we doubt that God could do this, particularly when it's something that's, you know, there's been cases of it throughout recent history, right, in the newspapers, But the most important reason to believe it really happened is because the lesson that Jonah had to learn through it and the lesson that Israel had to learn because this this book's written to Israel and the lesson we have to learn about God only makes sense if it really happened. If God wants to prove something about himself, about what he is like and what he's doing, it's not going to happen by telling us a myth. Right? It's perfectly okay for Jesus to tell parables about farmers and soils and good Samaritans who are you know, nameless, you know, made-up characters. But you know what the point is that he's making. There is no point if this didn't happen. This is a miraculous sign of God's gracious and powerful intervention in Jonah 2. So there's no point trying to explain it scientifically anymore than the miraculous signs of Jesus' ministry. Speculate all you like. But Jonah cried for help and God saved him miraculously by sending a giant fish to swallow him up and then vomit him onto dry land. And so the real question is not whether it happened, which it did, but why did it happen? Why this man? Why this way? Why now? Now last week, uh, Adam showed us Jonah's predicament from chapter 1. What had happened, that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh and preach that great city and preach against it. Now that's significant for a couple of different reasons. It's significant because Nineveh was the capital of the superpower of the world at the time, Assyria. This isn't just a denouncement of Wagga Wagga. (laughs) This is a message of judgment for New York City or for Moscow. But it's also significant For the first time in history, God was sending a prophet to someone other than the nation of Israel. But it's even fascinating, more fascinating, because at the very same time Jonah was being sent to Nineveh, God was also sending other prophets like Amos and Isaiah to preach against Israel and to denounce Israel for their sins announced that God was going to bring a judgment on them. In fact, that he would do that by raising up a foreign nation to come and flatten his people. And that nation was Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh. 
So he's saying, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, but I'm also going to destroy you by the Ninevites, by the Assyrians. And so it's, it's like he was sending Peter Jensen to preach against Russia and its evil at the same time as sending Billy Graham to preach against Ukraine and its evil, and its evil too. Don't forget that. And while God's prophets were happy to come speak to their own nation, what did Jonah think of going to Nineveh? He said, no flipping way, I'm going there. I'm not going to Moscow. I'm not going to New York to denounce it. And so he up and ran for it. He jumps on a ship heading the opposite direction and we saw what happened, the storm that threatened to destroy the ship, the useless prayers of the crew to their false gods, their idols, uh, the way they figured out it was Jonah's fault by uh, drawing lots and drawing straws. And, and when they asked who he was, he said, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The only thing that's going to help you lot is chuck me up, throw me into the sea, let me drown. And he knows that it's a death sentence if they do that. But he is willing to die uh, whether it's because of the shame of realising you actually can't run from God uh, or the guilt feelings, how can you run from the guy who made the sea and the land? Or perhaps it's remorse. Lots of people give up on life because of that. But either way, he just surrenders himself to the sentence of death, or so it seems. But two separate things happen at the very same moment as he sinks into the depths of the ocean. The first one is, up top, the storm stops instantly. I, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in any sort of bad weather. It is frightening. Uh, if there's rain, and it's starting, like I've never been in a serious storm, but I've been, been on Sydney ferries in a storm, and man, that's scary, right? I've been on a fishing boat when the wind came up, and oh, it was like 45 degrees, and you're like, Argh. but yeah. It just stopped like that. Car. The twenty foot waves just flat. And and the pagan sailors, they don't want to be pagan anymore. <laughs> right? Verse sixteen, they were seized by great fear of the Lord in chapter one. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. I take it the vows are we're never going back to those losers, those lies, those idols. We're, we're with God now. And so they weren't just saved physically, they were saved spiritually as well. But something else happened at the same moment. You know what it was? Jonah's sinking into the depths. What happens? Before the fish comes. Jonah says that he prayed. I guess there wasn't much of a prayer, it's probably more gloggled right out. He cries out to God in his distress. He's been willing to die in his sins. And yet the moment that death was imminent, Jonah remembered God and cried for mercy. And God answered by appointing a great fish to swallow him. But that still doesn't answer why. Why him? Why now? Why this way? Because there's been lots of people who've asked for God's mercy, who've cried out in their distress and begged for help, and God has not chosen to act in this sort of way. Maybe you've asked God for something in your desperation and you feel like he's knocked you back. 
So why now? Because it wasn't just a critical moment for Jonah as he sank. It was also a critical moment in the nation of Israel. For though Jonah was sent to Nineveh, who is he really God's prophet to? Why is it in the Bible? It's in the Bible to speak to the Israelites and I guess later to us. Who's it written to after he's finished here? Back to his home nation. The book's not written for the Assyrians. He's gone and preached the message and never repented. We'll see that next week. It's for the people of Israel. It's for God's people. Because what's happening back home is God's been sending prophet after prophet after prophet to denounce them for their wickedness and their idolatry. That's what Jeroboam II has led them into. Right? The Israelites have been just as evil and stupid as the sailors, just as evil and stupid as the people of Nineveh, and as stubborn as Jonah himself. And he's warned them again and again to not stay on that path, to repent, to turn back and receive the loving kindness and the mercy of God rather than his righteous wrath, which is coming, bringing destruction through the hands of the Ninevites, no less. The ones who repented and turned back to God, as we'll see. The hammer's about to drop, and even now, at the last second, if they will turn from their idols and cry out to God in mercy, they will see and feel and experience God's pleasure. Jonah puts it this way in verse 8 of the chapter we're about to look at. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. I could be talking about their love for God because they've swapped it for something else, but, but I think they're abandoning the love that they could have, their love that they could receive, the faithful love of the Father. You could have everything from God, his love, his grace, his mercy, but to sake, forsake him for feeble substitutes is to lose it. Whether it be the idolatry of false gods and false spiritualities, or the idolatry of greed, as the New Testament keeps describing greed as idolatry, or the worship of things of this world as if they are God, or the worship of self. They're all ways of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it's so stupid, it's so dumb, because you're forsaking God's love. You're forsaking his mercy. You're forsaking the one who can save miraculously and turn lives around. You can have God's faithful love, you can have his mercy, you can have his care and affection, but not if you're worshipping a lie. And Jonah 2 really is a lesson about the mercy of God. It's the lesson that Jonah had to learn, the lesson that Israel needed to learn, it's a lesson that we might need to learn or at least be reminded of. Here is the loving kindness you forsake if you trade God in for a lie. This is the mercy of God and this is what it's like, and you don't want to miss out. <laughs> now, at staff meeting on Monday, we were discussing how long introductions to sermons should be, and I think I've just won. <laughs> Let's get into it. As Jonah prayed for a second time, this prayer in chapter 2 is his second prayer. He's talking in it about his first prayer. This, this time he's in the belly of the fish. He's reflecting back to God what he's learned about God's incredible mercy in being saved this way. And there are seven things that he discovered about God's mercy, seven lessons about it, right? And have you learnt them? The first lesson of God's mercy, 
God answers our cries of distress, even when we're guilty. Jonah wasn't on his way to Nineveh obeying God. He was running from God. Couldn't get more blatant disobedience. That's why he was in the water. Some of you might be in trouble now, precisely because of your disobedience. And you know it. You know what God wants and you're doing the opposite and it's not working out as it's bound not to. But you're wondering, is there hope? Will God have mercy on me and hear my cry in distress? Will take heart from Jonah. Drowning in his guilt, having said, kill me now because of the shame, God answered his prayer when he had second thoughts on his way down gave him another chance god doesn't save us because we're innocent because we're pure he saves us when we're guilty and yet we cry out to him second lesson god answers our cry in distress in spite of his judgment notice verse three you threw me into the depths he prays to god god you you you're the one that put me there he's not saying god's done something wrong he's just recognizing the fact I, I think the cavalcade's happening again you did this to me it might have been the sailor's hands at his own request i think that's it it's a small gang uh might have been the sailor's hands which grabbed him and threw him over the rails into the sea but jonah knows it was all of god he was under God's judgment. And I suppose nothing might make us despair in our distress like the thought that God's put us there because he might be angry with us. But even if we are in a rotten situation because of God's anger, that doesn't mean there's no point in praying for his help. Jonah knew he was guilty. He knew this was God's judgment and yet he dared to pray. And the God who threw him in heard his prayer and miraculously sent the fish. Now, you might wonder, well, hang on, does God really get angry with people and bring pain into our lives? Absolutely, he does. You can see it in history as he's threatened to bring judgment and destruction and brought it on many people in the scriptures. And scripture tells us over and over again that suffering and hardship are given by God to his own people in order to chasten us and discipline us as his children. Said in Job 35, in Hebrews 12, James 4, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, to name a few. But we tend to find it really hard to believe because we've swallowed the cultural lie, the cultural idol of God, that he's wimpy and pathetic, that he's a pushover like the parents of a spoiled child. Jonah found out just what it's like to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. But he begged for mercy and he received it. And so even if you feel the very hand of God is against you now, don't despair. Call on him. You'd be foolish not to. He answers his children in spite of his own judgment on them. The third lesson. God answers and delivers even in impossible circumstances. Jonah knew how impossible his situation. It was extreme. Listen as he describes his plight in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2. The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed me upon me forever. I mean, bad enough to fall overboard in a calm sea, how much worse in a raging storm with 20, 30-foot waves sucked down so deep, tangled in the seaweed at the bottom of the ocean. You know you're done for. What a terrifying moment. But God allowed the circumstances to get that bad. He brought Jonah to a point where it was impossible to say that anyone else saved Jonah other than God. It wasn't good luck. It wasn't his swimming lessons as a child. It wasn't his street smarts. It wasn't his ability to talk himself out of a bad situation that saved him. It was God and it was God alone. That's not to say that God will always let us find our way into an impossible situation before he saves, but it is to say that in his mercy and kindness, there's always hope. Remember Jonah's plight. It was impossible, but not with God. Fourth lesson, God's mercy comes in the nick of time. Verse 7, he says to God, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you to your holy temple. Despite, I guess, lapsing into unconsciousness on his way down, Jonah was still praying without an answer in sight. In fact, I bet he did black out and regain consciousness several hours later, realising he wasn't dead. He was in the belly of some great sea monster God can answer our prayers even at the 11th hour Habakkuk cries out in chapter 1 verse 2 how long O Lord must I cry for help and you do not listen lots of Christians desperately wonder the same thing how long is it going to happen maybe we despair that our loved ones are getting old and decrepit and they're heading towards death without Jesus Christ or that Someone in our lives has been hardened for so long now with no glimmer of interest in God, he couldn't possibly save them. But Jonah gives us courage to be unrelenting in our prayer. God can answer in the nick of time. The fifth lesson. In his mercy, God answers our cries of distress, but it might come in stages, not all at once. And not all those stages might be comfortable we have the idea somehow that if God was to answer my prayer, it's got to be all or nothing. As if well, you know, not everything we want rather than God hasn't answered. I'm pretty sure when Jonah cried out to God as he was drowning, he didn't say, Oh Lord, because <laughs> he was gurgling, <laughs> put me in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He probably said, save me. <laughs> and God's answer came in stages. Um, maybe to us sitting here, being in the belly of a fish, uh, breathing, you know, we're breathing fresh air. He, he had the stench of whatever's in the, the fish's stomach, you know, the seawater, and I bet his skin was bleached white from the stomach acid, as one report from the 1800s says someone was who was found inside of a whale. But it was salvation. And Jonah was conscious enough to realise he had been spared and now there's hope. He's not complaining about his surroundings in chapter 2 as he prays from the fish's belly. <laughs> he accepts that this is God's first stage of salvation as a guarantee of dry land. 
and he ends his prayer in the fish's stomach with this wonderful statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yippee, I've been saved like God's done it. He's answered my prayer. I'm like, I'm not comfortable. I'm cramped and stinks. Uh, and what's that floating over there? <laughs> but don't ever think that just because God hasn't done everything you've asked of him, that he's not at work. And if he chooses to save and heal and fix things by stages, then he's got good reasons for it. And it's right to thank him, even if we've just experienced the first steps of recovery. Being in a fish's stomach is a lot better than being in the weeds at the bottom of the sea, even if it's not yet back home. Sixth lesson Jonah learned about God's mercy. God answers our prayers of distress in order to win our undivided loyalty and thanksgiving. Look how he ends the prayer. He's a different man. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God doesn't save people from sin so they can go back to what they were doing beforehand, living without him. So that we could keep denying him and running away from him and swapping him for pathetic lies. He saves us despite our sin and despite his judgment, but he saves us so that we'll live for him in awe and wonder, with love and thanksgiving. He does it to change us. Paul talks about the even more miraculous salvation that we've received from God's judgment in the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, we looked at it a few weeks ago, he says, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all, for, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so I guess my question is, you're a Christian, do you have a thankful heart? Do you have a heart that's overwhelmed with joy when you think about all that God's done for you? Especially in calling you his child and, and welcoming you into his family. Do, do you want to please him? Are you compelled by his love? That's why God has saved us to win our undivided loyalty and fill us with thanksgiving for his mercy. That's what he did for Jonah. But finally, the last lesson about God's mercy, and I think actually this is one that Jonah hasn't learned by the end of the chapter. God answers us in our guilty distress to make us merciful like he is. Jonah won't learn that for another two chapters until chapter 4. But God saves us. He lavishes his mercy on us. He pays for our sins so that we might have his kind of heart towards other people. He doesn't do it so we can go on in resentment towards everyone else who have not yet received that mercy and go, oh, look at them out there. Aren't they evil? Bad, bad, bad. We're not like them. He does it so that we might see the world and other people through his eyes. God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and we should love him all the more for that. God still had work to do in Jonah to remake him but that's the business that God's in and why he has mercy on us. And so are you filled with a compassion for the lost and dying world that's living in its stupidity and blindness, running from God as fast as it can? substituting God 
for, and his ways for lies and unaware of the judgment that they face. Have you learned those seven lessons of God's mercy? Have you taken them to heart? He answers our cries in distress in spite of our guilt, in spite of his judgment, in impossible circumstances, in the nick of time, in stages to win our loyalty and thanksgiving and to make us merciful like him. Sometimes I reckon those lessons are hard to learn, aren't they? And we need to be reminded. Particularly hard, though, if we don't think we've been saved from very much ourselves. That was the problem of the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. They, they came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, prove yourself to us. Give us a sign. And what did he say? A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. He's putting them in their place, isn't he? But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. How foolish it would be to swap out God for a lie and abandon that loving kindness, especially when he's already sent his salvation. Something far greater than three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. He's given his son, Jesus, to die and rise again three days later. So don't forfeit or abandon his grace and his mercy, which is like this. Father, we want to thank you for what you have done in history and for giving it to us in the Bible, for this amazing story that captures the imagination, but Father, help us to learn the lessons from it about you and your grace and your mercy that you save when we're guilty even under your judgment we pray that we'll never give up praying for those who we despair will never turn to you because you can save in the nick of time and so help us not to abandon you ourselves and we pray for our culture our world our community our neighbors our friends and family who've traded you in we might be angry with them it might hurt us but we pray please for your mercy teach us to be merciful like you are merciful and to live for you and to have the praise of the lord jesus on our lips and go with his message and share of his salvation in his name we pray for his glory amen